Welcome to This is for the CV, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit. This is a podcast by Anthony and Rebecca, two professors in communication and political science, chatting about politics, pop culture, and the things in between. This week, we talk all things Confederacy, the Civil War, lost cause revisionism, meanings of monuments, and the context around which they emerged, and the Confederate flag. Hello, Anthony. Hey, Rebecca. How are you? Uh, I'm all right. You? Okay. It's June. It is June. Late June. Actually, June's almost over. Quarantine's going fast. No, it is. <laughs> is guess. that not how you feel? I mean, it's for That's somebody not who's truth. not coming out of his house till summer 2021. I mean, all right. Oof. Oof. <laughs> I yeah. will emerge like Noah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. Uh, Okay. So today, one of the things we wanted to talk about, and we won't stay on this the whole episode, is sort of the reemergence around a discussion about the Confederacy, the Confederate flag, Confederate monuments, U.S. military bases named after Confederate generals. And so every, it seems like every few years now, something happens and it sparks a conversation and then people sort of take their sides and we hear the same rhetoric over and over again. So we wanted to jump into it. And I know you teach some of this, right? I do. Yeah. So I'm curious to hear what you have to say. And I have thoughts on unlike every other thing we talk about. Yeah. So like before we even get into that, like I just wanted to ask you, since we're not from Texas, like we're from the coast. What was your, like as a child, what was your experience with that symbol, the Confederacy in general? Hmm. It's around Florida. Okay. Yeah, it is. People have flags. Um, I was in a more rural part of Florida, the Panhandle. It was a bit more rural. So there aren't monuments that I was aware of. And my education around it was, so I remember learning about slavery And I remember also learning sort of the context of, but very quickly after that, we were like, there was a civil war, the Union fought for this, the Confederacy fought for this, but, and then they told all these stories about the people in the Confederacy, right? Like, oh, look, there were black people fighting in the Confederacy as though they had agency. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh, look, um, only 3% of people were slave owners. So, So there was always very sort of qualified which I wasn't critical of at the time but that's my very rough memory of sort of remembering that and the flag always meant something negative and bad to me and to my family I was taught sort of in my family that well about what it meant but it was still around what about you California you know outside of like the Dukes of Hazard, which was a show that mm. we watched in my house and enjoyed in my house, right? I even think I remember having like an all-metal Dukes of Hazard lunchbox in like the second grade or whatever. But, <laughs> uh, you know, that symbol was just a fast way to get beat up where I'm from. Like, it wasn't mm-hmm. something like, even if you espouse those beliefs, you would never put that out there for anyone to see. Like, even back then, it wasn't... And And I'm thinking, like, the first... The first person I even saw promote that symbol, I had a neighbor growing up. His name was Billy. He was probably three or four years older than me. 
And he was on the block the whole time I was on the block. And we were always cool. But as he grew up and got out of high school and, you know, joined the fire department, I did notice that he had a small Confederate flag decal on his car or on the back of his truck. And, you know, I don't know if it was just age difference. You know, you age out of hanging out with people. We were still cool, I guess, but it wasn't like it was before. And I remember my brother coming home from college and like seeing that truck and and being like, whose is that? And I like, I just remember him being Mm. like very animated, like, whose is that? And then he's like, oh yeah, that's Billy. And he was like, okay, I got my eye on you, Billy. I'm not going to necessarily beat you up, but it, it, it was always like, Oh, but you've told me things about yourself now. Right. And then, you know, moving here and just seeing it being so much more prevalent. And I remember asking, like, I just remember asking black people here. I'm like, hey, is it just cool here to have this out? Like, are the black people cool with this out here? Because where I'm from, we weren't cool with this. Like, this is a quick way to get beat up where I'm from. And and to a person, they were like, no, we hate it, too. Like, Mm -hmm. we're we're, we're super pissed when we see it. I was like, oh, they're just bold. Yeah. Okay. God. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm always surprised. Always surprised. I guess I'm more surprised when it's somewhere that wasn't even a part of the Confederacy because I don't think you care that much about another state's history, right? Like a lot of people like to cloak themselves in uh, states' rights, history, whatnot. But when you're in California, <laughs> you're in Northern California and you're like the Confederacy, <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's a confusing one for sure. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I didn't hear the phrase the war of northern aggression until I was in graduate oh. school. And one of my one of my very good friends, you know, colleague now, you know, he's from Georgia. And I remember being in class with him and, you know, the professor was talking about it who grew up in Virginia. And she was like, yeah, what is Southerners? What does Southerners refer to the Civil War as Is it the war of northern aggression? I, my head shot up. I was like, what are you? Ta- what is that? The war of northern aggression? Excuse me. But that's a thing. Like that's 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 really how it's taught and 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 inculcated in the minds of folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess let's start there in terms of how this sort of lost cause rhetoric has infiltrated education and the way the Civil War is taught differently in different places in the same country. I mean, you know, the argument states' rights. This isn't about slavery. It's about you know, a democracy only being dependent on the people who are governed being cool with what's being dictated. And, you know, around these arguments around slavery, they fall into three arenas back then at the time. You know, you got the morality argument, the constitutional natural law argument, and you got the pragmatic argument. And on the morality argument, it's like, well, this is inconsistent with Christian principles. But, you know, on the other side of that argument, it's like, well, slavery's mentioned in the Bible a lot. And the fact that it is gives us the right to do this. Even Oof. though, I mean, if you read Exodus, you can tell pretty much that God hates slavery because, you know, he delivered the Israelites out of the hands of Egyptian slavery and bondage. Like the whole story of the promised land starts with bondage and being free from bondage. So I would read Exodus first if you want to know what God's you know, thoughts are on slavery. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but it's like, hey, Black people are like descendants from the curse of Ham and 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 we're somehow different and we, we brought this on ourselves, so to speak, you know. And again, I would just say, hey, check out the Human Genome Project. Like mm-hmm. we're all like 99 point 
0.95% the same, right? Like everybody is the same. People's pigment is determinate based on where they grew up in, in relation to the equator, not how they are in terms of like their genetic makeup or intellectualism, any of that. Like we're all just mm-hmm. part of the human race, but race Melanin is, count doesn't actually impact any of that. No, but you know, race is socially constructed. And so right. it matters, even if it ain't real, it absolutely matters as we're seeing you know, and then, you know, the natural Absolutely. law stuff, it's like, the, the, I think natural law is the arena that we're in today. This, as as humans, we have this, this right to freedom and equality, and nobody has the human right to enslave another human against their will, right? Like, that's, I think that's the frame we're in these days, but back then it was like, uh, these natural rights don't apply to black people. Full stop. You know, you read the Dred Scott decision, and and you should read the Dred Scott decision. I know you have, Rebecca, but it's like, just read that. Just understand that our Supreme Court was like, nah, you're property. Like, this is what it is. Right, you're not human. You're not human. This stuff don't Mm -hmm. apply to you. And so all these arguments about, like, our better angels and what the country was founded upon, it's like, we need to really be circumspect and think about what the country was founded on and what the, the meaning was for the words when they wrote them versus what we're saying now. And because the argument so often is, oh, you don't want to revise history or replace history. I agree. Sure. So let's actually teach it correctly. And so the fact that we want to always paint ourselves in the best light and ourselves, I mean, sort of leaders of this country or people who are descend from People who fought in the Confederacy, they want to paint themselves in the best light. And so they just sort of wash over everything. And so that's revisionist history, not maybe we shouldn't fly a flag. Or maybe (laughs) Robert E. Lee shouldn't be a hero. Like we have a Texas Confederate Heroes Day. That's a paid for holiday, but we can get into that. Um, Speaking of the language and sort of reckoning with that, I was looking at the Constitution of the Confederate States of America so for folks who want to say that the Civil War was not about slavery, it was about states' rights, mm. you know, to own slaves. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of articles that mention slavery, but one says, no bill of attainder ex post facto law or law denying or impairing the right of property in Negro slaves shall be passed. So the Constitution of the Confederacy made it illegal for any state within it to outlaw slavery. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was the, one of the main tenets. And then there's also a section that talks about their property, and they intentionally use the word slaves within property um, and talk about how uh, enslavers can't be confined and how they can move about and, and use their property. There can be no laws based on that. So that's in the Constitution. They're very intentional about what is different. And when you look at the differences between the United States Constitution at the time and the Constitution of the Confederate states of america the differences are slavery those are the differences yeah so i mean like there's just don't come at me with that it wasn't about slavery they said it was themselves yes and you know lincoln lincoln hasn't even been inaugurated yet and Mm. states are already leaving the union they didn't even give the man a chance to say what the policy was going to be or how he was going to get down it was just like we we have an idea of what's going to get down and we're out of here and once that happens it's just like well you don't have the right to leave and here comes the war like we're still the union 
I'm trying to preserve it. You're trying to leave. I'm not going to let you. Matter of fact, you never left. And the nicest thing that ever happened to the South, in my opinion, is Abraham Lincoln not slaughtering all of them as soon as the war was over. Like, you guys got to keep your stuff. Like, you know, that second inaugural address is the most graceful thing ever done to the South. He still blew his head off, right? And it's just like, mm, you, 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 you're real, real fortunate that after this war, what normally happens after wars didn't happen. And that's because we are supposed to be one union. Mm. Never viewed y'all as an enemy. Never viewed the... It was like, nah, we're still going to try to bring this thing together. But wars normally don't go that way. Right. I'm always, I don't know what the word is, fascinated maybe by the way different authors talk about the Reconstruction era. Mm. So some are like, it was a time of liberty, you know, People who were formerly enslaved could hold positions of power. We were, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates talks about how we were eight years in power. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's the other side that says that it was, you know, the the Union came in and burned things and did horrible things. And, and so it's these two sort of stories of atrocity versus liberation that are happening in the same space at the same time. And it just depends on who you were in that moment. I find that to be interesting. Yeah, and we're seeing, uh, we're we're seeing this idealized version of, like you were saying earlier, if we're gonna have this history, let's teach all of it, let's mm -hmm. show all. And of it. And it's it's messy and complicated and awful, and it doesn't mean that everything a Union soldier did was right, mm -hmm. but we also can't pretend that the Confederacy is somehow heroic in any way when they were literally fighting for slavery and they lost. And somehow we want to honor that legacy. Yeah, I mean, I'm a fan of always saying in all circumstances that the answer to all your questions is money. And so at the time of the Civil War, the slave trade was worth $3 billion. I don't even have any idea what that number is worth in today's money. But right. if it's $3 billion in the 1800s, I mean, let's be for real, concentrated in the hands of a very few. Who's going to just give that up unnecessarily like and and we see this playing out today like no time in history is any marginalized groups demands or requests met with oh sure let's do it it's never that it's oh why are you trying to upset the apple cart you're a radical you're outside the bounds of, of what it is it's like this this trope of like law and order like law is law it's the order part that always disturbs me because the order is like, who's supposed to be in line to what? What order are we talking about? What, how, where do I fit in this order? Because for me right now, the order sucks, and that's what we're talking about, or supposed mm. to be talking about, and you're right. saying, nah, you need to get back in line. Mm. And, and, and ne never, like, tell me the movement where they were like, oh yeah, you, could, you raised some good points. We're, we're, gonna, right. we're gonna get on that Ricky Tick. Like, that never happens. <laughs> I don't care what it is. You asked very politely. Right. You, you, you framed your argument so well. You know, I seen a commercial talking about, yeah, you know, we gave women the right to vote. I was like, you didn't give us the right to vote. We took that. We had to come out here and take that. You weren't trying to give us nothing. And that's, nobody's giving up anything. Right. You don't ever, you're never going to see a president come in and say, oh, you know what? We're going to repeal some of these executive powers because y'all gave me too much. They're going to mm -hmm. be coming there like, ooh, this is pretty dope. How do I get some more powers? 
How do I expand this? Right, and that has been the trajectory of every president to the expand whole time. presidential power. The, the whole, whole time. time. And power once given. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. So I'm curious in terms of, because I think you're, since you teach this, you're probably better to speak to it than I am, but how do you think we got to a place where the South lost, the South says that it was fighting for slavery to sort of this revised lost cause rhetoric that we even see showing up in our own textbooks today? I think this plays out in a couple ways. So in the news recently, we, we saw that HBO Max took off, uh, or HBO in general, they, 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 they removed Gone with the Wind from their catalog for a bit. And when they put it temporarily, yeah, and then they put it back on. And I think I think they have like a professor speaking before the movie starts. I've only seen the first 20 minutes of Gone with the Wind. I was mortified when I saw Gone with the Wind. I was like, ooh, but Gone with the Wind is this this pastoral, uh, patriarchal, New South type place where, hey, you know. There's no taskmasters. Our Negroes are happy. Everybody's cool. Don't you understand? This is this is the South. All the chaos that you see is because we let these people go. And so, you know, women play a big role in this idea. And 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 it, like the frame that that the patriarchal system has put onto women in society, this this cult of true womanhood of mm. hey there's the public sphere and there's the private sphere and women are supposed to remain in the private sphere and they don't they, they don't belong in the public sphere and it's the man's job to go out into the public sphere and bring the public to the woman because she can't handle it and they have to encode this and 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 a woman needs to you know have this pious pure submissive frame and that's the only frame for you that charge has been you know, broken away, broken away, broken away over and over again and in line with black folks, right? Because plenty of suffragists wanted, was like, okay, hey, our goals are aligned and we're going to fight, right? And so I think that's part of it. But the idealized version of the South, like to me, when Henry Grady in 1886 gives that, you know, this is the New South speech where he's speaking to Northerners and, you know, you lost. You know, how, how is the South going to be framed? And it's like, we're Puritans and we're Cavaliers. This Cavalier, this dude on the horse, this, 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 this individualistic cowboy, rugged individual is what we are in the South. And, and, and we're going to blend Abraham Lincoln with the Cavalier and the Puritan. And that's going to be the idealized version of what the South is. And mm. we're not here to uphold anything but hard work. We're just here to work hard and go about our business. And, you know, we know how to get along with, with the blacks and everything's going to be fine. Trust us. And that's, that is what is the frame that I see being upheld in those symbols now, mm -hmm. not the, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, you got gone with the wind, but I'll see you're gone with the wind and raise you 12 years a slave. Because that was mm -hmm. going on, too. If you watch 12 Years a Slave or Roots or, you know, or, or you know, you want to watch mm -hmm. Glory or something like that. Like, that is part of the story 
as well. I mean, I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. I don't know how the pie chart divvies up, but mm-hmm. it's every bit as true as everything else. We have Robert E. Lee himself. We have records of him talking about brutalizing the the people he enslaved and talking about how harsh you have to be and awful and cruel. And so we know that he was evil and he treated people horribly. And that's literally a man who has statues all across this country. So even in the context of sometimes we like to play off this role of the happy enslaved person, um, it just wasn't that bad. Look at George Washington. I'm like, no, that's 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 rape. Right. Like the but the fact that like black women had any agency when you're literally a slave and they were like choosing to have sex with their masters and then they were treated really nicely and like raised kids in the house. And I mean, I've seen lots of those stories peddled about. Um, They didn't have any agency They had. They were literally owned and seen as property. But even within the context of all that, we've got this man who we have records of how horrible he was. And we still honor him. We have Robert E. Lee, middle school, high school, elementary school, streets, monuments, all over the place. So I understand how this whole lost cause kind of retelling of what the South is has permeated our culture. But even when faced with something that is truly egregious, we still want to uphold that person. Okay, and and just to be fair, lost cause, this is... When we're saying the lost cause, this is, this oh, is yes. the doctrine that we're talking about. Okay, okay thank so you so the much. lost cause, this is a view of the South, a romanticized view, a very mystical view. And so it's on these tenets. The South fought the war exclusively because of constitutional issues. The plantation was the agricultural and social ideal. Slaves were happy on the plantation. That's a system that worked. And four, the cavalier is the admired character, horseman, high-ranking in the feudal system under under royalty horse's status you know he's about flair and social norms and you know we're gonna have a beer with the cavalier type rhetoric so mm-hmm. when we're saying lost cause like that's that's yeah, the frame you. rhetorically that we're talking about mm-hmm. there was lots of money and sort of intention put behind pushing that narrative forward we have the daughters of the confederacy mm-hmm. speaking of <laughs> whoo, women causing some harm there Um, We have the Daughters of the Confederacy right here in Waco. The leader of the Democratic Party here is a part of it, teaches it in in our schools from that lens. Um, It's permeated. And so this cuts across political party too, I'd say, because it really is a Southern thing to buy into this sort of revisionist history in a way that you don't see as much in other places when you have Democrats being a part of the, you know, mem- the historical memories of the Confederacy and praising this and wanting to pass on that information to their children. Yeah, and I think, too, you know, obviously fear plays a role because, uh, you know, there there is a real thought that, hey, if we let these minorities be in power or have say, they're going to brutalize us like we brutalize them. There's just this real thought that that's a thing, even though there's no evidence of that. You know, as early back as like 1820, you got Thomas Jefferson. You got Thomas Jefferson himself saying, but as it is, we have the wolf by the ear and we can neither hold him nor safely let him go. 
Justice is on is on one scale and self-preservation in the other. And so it's like mm. he knows. He knows. It's like, man, I know what we did to y'all. And if y'all did that to me, I know what I would do back. Jefferson would know because he enslaved over 600 people. Right. Right. And we visit his plantation. They're like, oh, how beautiful. Look at the flowers. I haven't with been, like no social contact. I haven't been to Monticello. I want to go. I've been to Mount Vernon. It's very nice, right? Very majestic. And, you know, Thomas Jefferson's Monuments, one of the dopest places you could be in D.C. It's beautiful. But there's dissonance there, mm-hmm. you know? And, and beautiful words that you can go see and read and the documents that they sign in the National Archives are in strict contrast and contradiction to what was going on on the ground for all the people. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And they knew that. But their response to that dissonance was, it wasn't, we need to do something about it. It was, y'all ain't human to begin with, so we shouldn't even contend with this. And as we've realized over and over and over again that, oh, yeah, everybody is human. Everybody is human. You know? Yeah. It has forced us to reconcile these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I find that to be interesting, sort of how we've let the the losers of a war tell its own story or tell their own story. And granted, we're in the South, and so that's a piece of it. Are but we in the, the fact South? that we've Texas named count? Eh, debatable. It's not. It's it's not Mississippi. Let me tell you. I mean, um, it's as far south as I'm going. But. Yeah, but but fair. Um, definitely different type of south. Uh, most of the Confederate monuments, memorials, schools named after Confederate soldiers are in Alabama and Louisiana, Mississippi, Georgia. So there is a professor of history at. Boston College, Dr. Heather Cox Richardson, she wrote a book recently called How the South Won the Civil War. And Mm. I just want to read to you about these monuments. Yes. Uh, Very briefly, this is what she says. In the early part of the 20th century, Southern towns began to erect statues of Confederates, making them into Western-style heroes and individualists. No longer were Confederate soldiers fighting for slavery. Instead, as the dedication speaker for the statue that stood on the University of North Carolina campus put it, they fought for states' rights against consolidated despotism. Their heroic individualism has preserved democracy for Northerners, who were finally coming around to see the light. Confederate wives, sisters, and mothers had nurtured the soldiers, cheered them on, remained devoted to the cause, and kept alive the memory of the dead. And that Mm. is how you lose a war, but win a war. But win a war. Because you might have lost on the battlefield, but in the hearts and minds of the people that lived on after that, it means something else. And why does it mean something else? Because we say so. Mm -hmm. The heritage isn't, we fought to enslave a bunch of people. The heritage is, no, we preserved individualism. We showed that the individualistic nature of our democracy is thriving and and is the heartbeat of the nation at large. And within that, she mentions when we start to actually see all of these symbols and monuments go up. War ends in 1865. (laughs) Reconstruction ends in, what, 1877? Mm -hmm. When would you suppose, I know you know, but when, (laughs) when, (laughs) I don't know why I'm like pretending you wouldn't, but when do we actually start seeing all these monuments going up? Well, if it was really about the Civil War... And really about the Confederacy, I would say that they would be showing up around, I don't know, 1881, 1882. But that's not the case, right? 
Right. I mean, it would, you could make the argument that would be after Reconstruction, right? After the Union left mm-hmm. um, and allowed. Right. And allowed people. Jim Crow to come in. It's like, okay, hey, here's what we're mm-hmm. going to do. But no. The year that it peaked is 1910. Right. The year after the NAACP was founded, mm. for some context. Mm. In the heart of the Jim Crow era, when we see the first sort of peak of these start to happen, it's after Plessy versus Ferguson. Oh, lovely. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center has a timeline grid that counts monuments on other land, monuments on courthouses and government grounds, roads, schools, colleges, named after Confederate soldiers, and it goes whoosh straight up for 1910, right in the heart of Jim Crow. And they're put in places around black neighborhoods to be like, hey, remember your place. Mm-hmm. As as these Jim Crow laws are passed, monument next to neighborhoods. In my mind, that's racial terror. That's very intentional in what you're trying to communicate with that. Then the next surge happens during the Great Depression. Not as severe, much less so. But in my mind, that's saying the moment things get bad, we start turning on people that we see as the other, particularly in the South, and reminding people of monuments. And then the final, like the, the biggest growth after that is the Civil Rights Movement. It starts right after Brown v. Board of Education. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, these monuments start going up again mm-hmm. because we want to desegregate schools. So if it's not about slavery and it's not about racial oppression, and it's not about white supremacy, why do they go up after Brown v. Board of Education and continue to increase during the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act? And the Little Rock Nine, right, as all of these students are starting to integrate. Because, I mean, it is. Yeah. You know, and Heather Cox Richardson argues that every Confederate monument should come down. Every one of them. I agree. I was going to ask you if you, I don't know if I, like, I guess I would just as soon see right next to the monument be like, look, these people is stone cold racist, fought to the death for it. This stuff was enacted in and, and, and put into place for these reasons, and we got this right next to the plaque. To bulldoze it, turn it into a dust pile, and say it never happened, you know, 100 years from now, people can really be like, well, what are, what are you even speaking of? We don't even know. And it's just like, eh, I, I'd rather it still be there. I'd rather us still have to reconcile with it with proper historical frame and reference. Yeah, if there's context, I totally get your point. I really do. Because we that could even play into the revisionist history of we never even did anything mm-hmm. wrong. Everyone was happy. Mm-hmm. The South. Um, so I hear you. I think that there's a couple of ways to do that. And I like the idea that's been promoted of history belongs in museums. So you can have them, you can take them down of town squares or government property mm-hmm. where taxpayers are you know paying to upkeep them and give them that context say this is when this statue was erected this is what was going on at the time this is what you know actually tell that story that's interesting to me and that actually gives context rather than just being like oh look the south arise again cool 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 um and then some of them like the things that they say on them 
like it just it ends the debate for me personally. So there's one there was an an article that was pretty popular. The gentleman, it's he's a law clerk and he wrote back on this email to a judge and he was one of only five uh, black law clerks in the whole district. And he's anonymous because it was shared under the promise that they would keep his name out of it because they didn't want to get him fired. But in this really beautiful argument, he screen caps some of the monuments. And there's one in New Orleans. And on it, this Confederate, it's the Battle of Liberty Place Monument. It says, United States troops took over the state government and reinstated the usurpers. But the national election, November 1876, recognized white supremacy in the South and gave us our state. Mm. That's what the monuments say. So it literally praises white supremacy, states that the election of 1876 is about upholding white supremacy. And we still have folks saying, oh, it wasn't about that or let's let's keep it up. In my mind, having that there tells people what that state stands for mm-hmm. and that that's okay. That that's not just okay, but that we praise that, right? Plaques and museums are for learning. Monuments are for praising. Mm-hmm. So when we have statues and especially where they are, when we have statues on government property that say crap like that, mm-hmm. that praise white supremacy, that's not saying, oh, let's learn from our mistakes. That's saying, yeah, we co-sign that white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think you've. I think. I think I'm persuaded. Get a, put them in the museum. Put them in a museum. I, I'm totally, totally for not forgetting. I think that that's incredibly important because we want to forget. We want to feel soothed, especially as white folks. We don't want to remember the horrific things. And so it, it would be easy to just like knock them down, pretend it never happened. Um, so I'm for preserving actual history and all of its messiness, right? There are few true heroes. <laughs> um, but I don't think they necessarily belong on government property without context like that. If, if I walk by that, that tells me what Louisiana stands for as a state. Mm. Yeah, I think I'm persuaded. I'm with it. Right now, speaking of the Southern Poverty Law Center, I was trying to find this information and they just gave it to me in a beautiful report. We have um, 780 Confederate monuments, more than 300 of which are in Georgia, Virginia, North Carolina. So earlier I misspoke. I left out Virginia, North Carolina. 103 public K-12 schools and three colleges named for Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, or other Confederate icons. 80 counties and cities named for Confederates, and nine observed state holidays in five states, including Texas, which has Confederates Heroes Day. And that's a paid day off for the state of Texas and 10 U.S. military bases. Mm. Yeah. What do you think about U.S. military bases being named after Confederate soldiers? Uh, As the the child of two Marine Corps veterans— I don't like it. Yeah, I that makes sense to me. We've got Fort Hood just down the street too. Yeah, I, the military is apolitical. They are an instrument to be pointed at an enemy and used when necessary to politicize a base. It it shouldn't be about that. You know, it just shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. 
even pretending there's no moral argument here or political argument, which of course there are both of those, it doesn't make sense to me to name U.S. military bases after a government in a war that you rejected ever existed. (laughs) And lost. And and, and was treasonous. And lost. Just, it, it it seems bizarre. We don't name other monuments after countries we've gone to war with. Because why would we? That would be very bizarre. And this is what you're getting at. Folks want to just say, hey, no, racism only exists in the South. Lies. Mm-hmm. Million times lies. You know, the cotton got grown in the South and sold to the North and sold all over the place. Like, everybody benefited from slavery and plenty of people in the North opposed schools being desegregated from from Boston to Chicago and everywhere else in between and on the coast it's just there's it's just here you know to, yeah. to put it on the south and say it's just the south and that's where it is and that's where it lived and that's where it existed lets a lot of lets a lot of us off the hook to to mm-hmm. even have to reconcile it and say oh well I'm not really I wasn't mm-hmm. really complicit in that and you know, I heard, I heard, I forget which professor it was, but I heard somebody put it this way. In the North, black-white relations went like this. They don't care how high you got so long as you didn't get too close. And in the South, mm. they didn't care how close you got as long as you didn't get too high. And so it, it's still, it's the same thing, just different branches of it. It's, it's, it's you know. Mm-hmm. And here is what I would say if I can lean in white people. <laughs> I'd like to talk to you for a moment. Here's what I would say for those who reject everything we just said. Who said, nope, that's not what the flag means to me. That's not what monuments mean to me. I don't buy it. Okay. I mean, not okay to me, but okay, right? I accept that that's, that's where you're going to stand with it. Um, I've heard lots of arguments, particularly from students, about their ancestors, and they were like really nice Confederate soldiers and, you know, the terrible things that happened to them which are are all likely true. The KKK uses the Confederate flag. Um, White supremacists, when they march, they use the Confederate flag. Dylan Roof, when he shot up, when he murdered nine people in an AME church, he took a photo with a Confederate flag and his gun before he did so. So if it doesn't mean that to you, it does to white supremacists, and they use that symbol to enact violence on others. So if that's what it means to them, and that's what it means to many black people, particularly in the South, when they see those images, the inconvenience of you not flying a flag that enacts racial terror on others is something you should just accept and move on with your life. It is asking such a small amount of inconvenience for you so that other people don't think that you literally want to murder them. So, like, just do it. Get over it. Ah, you bring up Dylan Roof. I'm sorry. I went dark. It's a fascinating thing about Dylan Roof. Not the fact that he was unremorseful or anything like that. Like, after, he was, like, totally cool with it. He was happy he did it, all of that. Mm. What strikes me most about Dylan Roof is that he walked out of there alive. It's like, you walked in there, you let off many, many shots, killed many, many people, the police responded, and yet they did not murder you. They did not consider you a threat, not enough to kill you, even though you was letting off shots. I wonder what it was about Mr. Roof that was so unthreatening. 
because he lived to tell his story. He lived mm-hmm. to shout out his manifesto. Meanwhile, other folks, even if they ain't got no gun, they a threat. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're to be fearful. I mean, imagine the call that goes out over to the police to say, hey, we've got a shooting at this church, multiple shots fired, shooter in the building. <laughs> like, that's, that's threatening. They didn't go in there letting off, and I'm not saying they should have. I'm saying, how is he not threatening and other folks are? Yeah, I, I think that is the argument that folks make in, in that instance. It's not that we want white people to experience police brutality, no. too. No. It's that these instances show that restraint and de-escalation is always an option, even in the face of someone who is dangerous. So if that's true, then it's especially true when someone may have used a fraudulent $20 bill or sold a cigarette or sat right. in their home right. or oh, sat in their home again or jogged, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. As an aside. As an aside. No, that's a good point. Um, have you seen this stuff that happened over the weekend in Waco around the Confederate flag? I did not. So I think it fits in with our conversation well. So there's a, a group of two, uh, four young men in two trucks sitting in the Target parking lot with Confederate flags flying on their trucks on Juneteenth. And they are yelling racial slurs to people as they go by, particularly Denise Anderson. She's interviewed in an article. Um, She said they called her a racial slur, then they followed her into Target Mm. and and cornered her and and like bumped into her and stuff. And so she's complained about it. And the response to her Facebook post, because she took video, like some, I, I'm not even sure if it was her, but someone has video and posted it. And they're like, how could you out these people and their license plate? All that information is public. But the response has been twofold. But there's been too much, in my opinion, on the side of wanting to protect these young boys. They're all over the age of 18 for doing this to this young woman on Juneteenth, not that it would be okay on any day, but I, I have a hard time believing that it wasn't intentional. And so that's what the Confederate flag is used for here in Waco. And so, again, I say, even if it doesn't mean that to you, this is how other people are using it literally days ago. So stop. Well, yeah, I didn't know. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Did we? What did I? Did we talk to or satisfied on this? <laughs> yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think we could transition. The one of the first times we went anywhere together for work, we were in like a rental with Lewis and Sydney, and our boss and our coworker, and we drove through. We must have been going to Cleburne, and we drove by a house with a Confederate flag, and I went oof. And you said, oh, that's just history. That's just Southern history. And I didn't know you were joking yet. And I was looking at you like, oh, my gosh, is he serious? What? A- I can't say anything to this man. <laughs> I was like, I'm like, I'm not allowed to tell him how to feel about this, but he can't possibly feel that way. <laughs> my wheels were just like, oh. Uh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, I, I quickly realized you were not serious. But in that moment, I just, I really didn't know you. So I was just like, oh, my God. 
Oh, yeah. I mean. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> oh, what are you watching? Um, What am I watching? I started the second season of The Politician yesterday. Ooh, that came out. I watched that fast. Yeah, I'm not ready to talk all the way about it. That's fair. I can talk about it in the broadest strokes. Like, I like it because, you know, it just speaks to the ambition that you need and just raw, rugged, political framing and and just... It, it just does a really good job of showing what you need if you're going to be successful at that game. Going to need some narcissism. Yeah, well, I mean, anybody who can look at their self and say, you know, what is my district, country, state? What do they What do they need? Me. Like, if if that, if you think I am that, the answer. Yeah, if you think <laughs> that in your head, like, you, got, you yeah. got some problems anyway. So. Yeah. No. I like how. I, I totally agree. And then I'm also like, hey, young people, don't forget to run. <laughs> but, but you're right. It takes something. It takes a particular level of hubris, especially when you don't have the experience. And you're like, you know what? People need me. Mm-hmm. They get at later on some of the differences in governing versus campaigning, which I think are really interesting. And I want to say maybe it's like the second to last episode. It's told through the lens of two potential voters, a mom and a daughter, going about their day on election day. And I think that might be the best episode of this show. Oh, okay. It's really interesting. They it. get into a lot of generational issues, political issues. I, it, was really, it was really fascinating. So I think it continues to be a good show. I was watching it through the lens of, could I show this in class? And I was like, I don't think I could. <laughs> oh, sure you can. You sure, think? Some of it, yeah. It's a little raunchy, but maybe maybe an episode or two. We're in college, man. We could we could do this we is could true. Do raunchy. You just have a little disclaimer, <laughs> like, look, we're gonna yeah. cover some adult themes. If you ain't comfortable, you could take a walk. Like, you know, like, like listen, yeah. guys, <laughs> listen. <laughs> Should we talk about COVID stuff? I mean, we could touch on it briefly. Okay, Waco now has a mask order. Yeah, does it take effect Wednesday or is it in effect now? I believe it's in effect now. Uh-huh. They're giving businesses time. They're not going to uh, enforce anything about it, but it, it went into effect immediately. That's my understanding. I could be wrong. Yeah, it's essentially in public spaces you have to have a mask um, and then businesses have to require their patrons to wear masks. I was at HEB this morning. There was a lot of masks. I was getting my curb signed, but I seen a, a lot more masks than I ever seen before. I, I see a lot of people complaining because, well, a couple of reasons. Like, it's not enforceable. This doesn't go far enough. Or like, my constitutional rights. And they're talking about body autonomy, which I can't even begin to talk about right now. Whew, that one gets me a little heated. Yeah, it's not perfect, right? It's absolutely not perfect, but this is as much power as the governor gave the cities. They said, because they wrote, like a bunch of cities got together and wrote a letter to the governor and said, can we require people to wear masks? And he was like, no, but you can require them to wear masks on like government property. and So like the parks and public spaces, and you can require businesses to have their patrons use it. So, and so that's why they're doing this in kind of like a weird way. So... If you're mad, be mad at the right people. Also, 
even though it's not perfect and you can't enforce everything, look at the difference at HEB in, in one day or from one week to the next. I'm, I'm disappointed that we need to be told to do it at all. That we wouldn't just do it of our own volition. Yeah, why do you wear a mask? I wear one because I respect the people that I might come in contact with, Boom. first and foremost. And I hope that they would respect me enough to wear one. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if we both have one on, we reduce each other's risks exponentially. Absolutely. Our colleague, who's a biologist, explained it well to us. She said, my mask protects you. That's the main thing that it does. If you want to be protected from other people and you're in a room where no one's wearing a mask, that's when you need that N95 mask. Mm-hmm. But just a, like your homemade, your regular surgical mask, those types of things, the, the point of wearing those and where the real benefit comes is keeping essentially, sounds gross, your mouth particles up against you and not sharing those, not putting them into the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And then, like you said, when someone else wears them, it increases that. So if we're all wearing them, it's a community thing. It's to take care of one another. Yeah. Now, I know. I know. Deep down. I know you don't like the dissonance of, hey, these masks are afoot. That means that this virus is still here, which means that things are uncertain, which means I'm not really in control, which means what else am I not in control of? I know. Mm. I know how that rabbit hole goes. But the only thing we can control is ourselves. I cannot control my environment. I cannot control other people. I cannot control the economy. I cannot control the vote. I cannot control any of that. I can only control myself. And even to that extent, I have no control over whether or not I stop breathing when I go to sleep. Those things are beyond my pay grade. And so when as human beings we are faced with those types of existential thoughts, We do anything we can to grasp some type of power back, to claw it back and to be like, no, I am in control. No, you are not. These things are uncertain. These things are beyond us. Mm. That's so insightful. So you think that's where the resistance to wearing masks comes from? Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense to me. Of course. Because I've struggled to understand it, but that was a light bulb moment. All right, I'm convinced. (laughs) (laughs) Anthony, what's our quote today? Oh, the quote, you should move to a small town somewhere the rule of law still exists. You will not survive here. You are not a wolf. And this is a land of wolves now. Wolf. What's that from? Sicario, the first one, the only one. This has been This Is For The CV. Thanks for listening, Mom. This Is For The CV is a Larson and Lestrat production. Editing done by Rebecca Larson. Music performed by Issa Black. Thanks, man.